0: A uh, few months ago, we started on an occasional message series of uh, about God as the issue and trying to get God back into the culture, back into the conversation. Uh, and uh, we're going to continue that today. Uh, last month we talked about a variety of issues. Uh, this month we're going to talk about one that's a little heavier. Um, I'm going to start with Proverbs 24, which says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. If you forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, and those that are ready to be slain, if you say, Behold, we didn't know it, does not he that ponders the heart consider it? And he that keeps your soul, does he not know it? And shall he not render to every man according to to his works. Abortion. It was the cause of my generation. I'm not sure what the cause of today's generation is, but uh, that verse and others uh, called people of my age, uh, many, to action. Uh, It was prefaced in my life by the 60s, which... had much uh, social upheaval. Uh, And with it, the God is dead, me first, free love, if it feels good, do it generation. Uh, Because of that, a convenient way out for inconvenient circumstances was needed, which hastened the rush to abortion. But there's really nothing new under the sun. History records abortion in both the Greek and Roman cultures not only for natural causes when there is a death in the womb but but also to control population and for inconveniences, even appearances. Uh, the early church largely condemned abortion but generally drew the line at quickening uh, when the baby moved in the womb uh, because really that's all they they could determine. That's all they really knew. Is They felt like when the child moved, it must be alive. But some had some concerns about that, and some actually thought it through. Augustine said, Therefore the following question may be very carefully inquired into and discussed by learned men, though I do not know whether it is in man's power to resolve it. At what time the infant begins to live in the womb? whether life exists in a latent form before it manifests itself in the motions of the living being. To deny that the young, who are cut out limb by limb from the womb, lest if they were left there dead, the mother should die too, would never have never been alive, seems too audacious. In other words, it was a tough question. Without the science, without the medical technology, um it was it was an interesting question that people who thought thought about. more recently in the 18th century, English and American common law allowed abortion if performed before quickening. Uh, but by the late teen, late 19th century uh, many nations had passed laws that banned it the English common law uh, under that uh, Abortion after fetal movement or quickening was punishable as homicide, and abortion was also punishable if the fetus is already formed but not yet quickened. There's a pretty extensive history I won't go through, but uh, in the 19th century, surprise, uh, the AMA, the, the doctors actually moved to outlaw abortion, and during that same period, the women suffragettes, the, the early, early feminists, actually condemned abortion. Such uh, leaders as Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Uh, of course, Russia allowed free abortion. Nazi Germany, they thought it was great, especially for racial hygiene. Uh, but it, things really didn't start to move in the United States until about 1959, when the American Law Institute, which is an organization whose purpose it is to draft model laws. They have no legislative power, but they draft model laws and then they propose them to the states for passage and they drafted a model law to provide access to abortion. And in 1961, surprise again, California became the first state to introduce a bill uh, based upon that model. Things heated up judicially in about 1965. Prior to that, the state of Connecticut had passed a law which prohibited the dissemination of information about contraception to, uh, to its, its people, and that law was challenged. And in that case, the United States Supreme Court, in its decision striking down the law, found the right of privacy in familial relations. The right of privacy, you might be surprised, is not in our Constitution I think we may have talked about this before, but the U.S. Supreme Court found the right in the penumbra of rights enumerated in the Constitution. Penumbra, again, is the uh, partial shadow outside the complete shadow formed by the sun and the moon during an eclipse, if you've ever seen that sort of thing. So it's kind of a fuzzy concept. but because the, the court used a word, penumbra, that nobody knew, everybody, most casual readers, figured, well, they must be, there must be some legal rationale. But this was simply legalese for we are creating a new right. Um, just a few years later, an enterprising young l- lawyer, uh, just newly out of law school, seized upon this newfound right to privacy in the family and applied it to the individual person. If a couple had a right to find out how to prevent conception of a child, it's a relatively small logical jump to conclude that the woman who goes through the pain and discomfort of pregnancy and birth and, and uh, to whom most men will listen, especially the angry ones, certainly has the right to choose to prevent the child, or the birth, after conception. After all, they reasoned, it is her body. And so the United States Supreme Court in 1973, reflecting homage to the cultural god of the day, self, bowed down in its infamous decision of Roe v. Wade in a 7-2 split, effectively striking down all statutes prohibiting abortion. We in conservative Kansas seem always to be the center of this debate. Studies in the early 60s showed that, believe it or not, most students at the University of Kansas believed in marital fidelity and relations within that context. That didn't sit well with avant-garde social engineers and medical personnel who saw this attitude as an impediment to the paradigm shift that they wished to advance. And so they set out to replace this hold, holdover from the puritanical 50s with notions of individual autonomy, also known as self-indulgence, and physical love free of obligation and commitment. They believed that if they could change the attitudes of people in the heart of the country, they could do it anywhere. And they simply asked, What's wrong with loving the one you're with? As the song from Our Generation shouted out. Those social engineers set out to change the mores of the student body of the University of Kansas which contributed to one of the most significant cultural shifts in recent history. It's well documented, many believe, that the sexual revolution which necessitated access to abortion started in Lawrence, Kansas. One of the leaders of that group was a physician, a Lawrence physician by the name of Clinton who eventually opened a medical clinic in Lawrence to provide abortion services. Just a convenient business opportunity. Uh, This effort was apparently very successful, not just in Lawrence, but across the state. Kansas, the heart of America, conservative Republican Kansas, was one of the first states of the Union to allow abortion on demand, beating out Roe v. Wade by almost five years. Now, where was I? Well, I was lost in space. I was in school, personally oblivious to the debate. But later, once I developed a little gravity, um, had a wife and children, Christy and I became convicted by the passage I just read and and others and got involved with the fight for the unborn. I remember marching around the hospital in frigid weather January, I think some, some others have done that as well. Uh, we involved in legislation, conferences, anything that might slow down the flow of innocent blood. In fact, I went to a, a meeting of lawyers one afternoon and where another lawyer was trying to organize uh, people to, to work on this problem, and that lawyer said, "Is anybody here interested in just kind of We need somebody who can talk to the legislators." And I had been involved a little bit on the homeschooling movement with the legislators, so I raised my hand. And then in a couple of weeks, I got a letter to a bunch of people on the, the pro-life organization letterhead, and, and there was my name listed as the lobbyist. <laughs> now, I won't tell you who that lawyer was, but it happens to be the father of Mike Patton. <laughs> who last sued me into that. Uh, who was uh, who was and is very active in, in this effort. It was not until after years of this activity that Christy and I began to see how hardened or at least how apathetic people were to this particular issue. I don't mean the world. I mean the church. Um, it's a very uncomfortable issue. It's rather distasteful. It's pretty contentious, and for some, it's simply somebody else's problem. Uh, But beyond these disincentives for involvement, we saw another side that caused even greater concern. I found some dissonance between the view of the world and some in the church, and at least how I saw Scripture speaking on this particular issue. And what drove this point home to me was that one day, while I was teaching in our, our home school, I ran across a statistic that frankly gave me a jolt. The lesson included a table on fertility rates over the years. and back when they started keeping track of these things, uh, in the mid1800s, the rate was about seven children born to each childbearing woman. and of course, you can imagine that a lot of those kids died early in, in, in childhood. Uh, But And understand, I grew up in a neighborhood in Kansas City filled with Catholic families. We were near a large Catholic church and and, uh, Catholic school. And so we were the small family with three kids, and most of the families had six to ten in there. So um, I was surprised to read in this table that uh, uh, the fertility rate... um, was uh, only about 3.6 children in the 50s, late 50s. Um, And by the early 90s, the table showed the rate was down to 1.8. Aha, there's the effect of abortion. Well, what caught my attention was that the rate in 1970, three years before Roe v. Wade, was 1.8. In other words, while I'm sure that some pre-Roe v. Wade abortions affected the birth rate, it seems pretty clear that the attitudes about children had changed dramatically in 20 years. In other words, if the court had upheld the abortion restrictions and we didn't have free access to abortion, Many of the children aborted post-Roe v. Wade probably wouldn't have been conceived in the first place because their parents would have found another way to prevent them. Abortion just became the last method of contraception. Therefore, as a family, we began to shift our focus from debating about abortion to instead encouraging a love for children, and for strengthening marriages. So what's really important is not what Kent and Christie think, but what does the Bible say uh, about abortion? Well, nothing directly, but even though it's never mentioned, the inferences are so strong as to be, I think, unavoidable. The main point in Scripture is that we are created in the image of God. And so we're something more special than animals. That's why we punish people who intentionally harm other people. That's called battery. And we sometimes put to death people who put other people to death. That's called murder. Uh, The Bible seems to view children as a gift, a blessing, a heritage from God. Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the room is his reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. In battle, how many arrows do you want in your quiver? And my answer is, as many as I can bear. Now, the foundation of the pro-life movement, philosophically, is that life begins at conception. And unlike the early church, we have the advantage of being able to see into the womb. and We've got medical and scientific technology which informs our view, and it's undeniable. See, life is essentially a continuum. And once it starts, it's a life until it ends. Uh, and from a biological and legal standpoint, taking any other point of view for origin of human life is simply arbitrary or simply plain God because there is no other logical point of beginning for the, for the commencement of life in its continuum. Now, the United States Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade simply sidestepped this rather huge roadblock by pointing out the disagreement on this issue among the medical and legal and religious authorities. And therefore, the court said it did not need to decide when life began, and then it proceeded to decide that life does not begin at conception, effectively. Uh, They reasoned that the woman's right to privacy and the right to choose what happens to her body trumps any disputed right to life of those with the misfortune of being yet in the womb. In other words, legal ease. for we're creating a new, right, a new right here and for all practical purposes, life that we're going to protect does not begin at conception. Now, with that conclusion, I agree. In a sense, that is. From a scriptural standpoint, I become convinced that life does not ultimately begin at conception. Now, this is mine and my view and my view only. I just ask that you consider the following passages. The most common one that we, we hear about in talking about this issue is Psalm 139. Now, listen to the words. For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. In Revelation 4, it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And this is not a proof text. But what I take from that... Let me ask some questions. Do you believe Jesus Christ created all things? Were you and I created by Jesus Christ? How about your parents and grandparents and all your ancestors, your children, grandchildren, and all your descendants? Does God have a plan for your life? Does that plan include when you're going to live on earth and the family you're going to be a part of? If God foreknew all these things, when did God, if not physically, at least spiritually, plan and create you and me? It seems to me from these passages, at least in a spiritual sense, that life doesn't begin at conception. It actually began in eternity past when we were planned. And frankly, we should be very slow to refuse a blessing, a gift from the creator of the universe. Even though God does allow us to choose to prevent those blessings planned way back. Now, This is clearly a hard saying. You know, the opinions expressed here are not necessarily the opinions of the management. (laughs) Not all can accept this view. I simply ask that you think about it as you prepare to answer this cultural question and prepare we must. For the question is, as we speak, if not being resurrected, at least revived from the cultural backdrop. Today, you know, gone are the days of the large rallies. And the abortion debate has been overshadowed by many other issues. Terrorism, energy, gay rights, marriage. You know, a lot of things have come up. Uh, but beyond that, frankly, the pro-life movement has lost a lot of its steam as apathy has set in. But we here in Kansas, we seem to keep it alive. Uh, We've seen a battle over the last several years over the rule of law itself as in the media as those charged with preserving the law appear to have used their position and influence to protect the abortionists from those very laws. Now, think about where we are nationally. On our Supreme Court, there are four justices considered to be ready to overturn Roe v. Wade. There are nine total, so you need five. Uh, So the biggest question is, for the balance of the court, is what judicial philosophy will replace the next retiring justice? Okay? Now, those who favor abortion rights know that they're losing the popular debate, and they're losing ground in the legislative bodies, and they depend upon the federal judiciary as their last defense. This present split of four to five on the Supreme Court will continue for another decade or two if a pro-choice president is elected. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg... Uh, on the court, he's, she's a Clinton appointee. She's 72 and not in good health. Uh, uh, justice John Paul Stevens—he was—he's the last remaining justice from the Roe v. Wade majority. He's 85. Okay, the pro-life justices are all young, uh, and so if we have a pro-abortion president elected, I think you can expect one or two retirements early in 2008, and then. A nomination. This was this is what makes the U.S. Senate so important in that the Senate confirms or rejects the, the nominations of the President. And so suffice it to say, we've got to be ready on our level not just to put pro-life senators in office who will vote on the confirmation of the President's nominee, but more importantly neighbor to neighbor to win the hearts of the culture back to a God-honoring perspective of life. You see, even if we win the Supreme Court and later the State House, which are two very, very big ifs, we're not going to hold on to those things if the fickle hearts of people aren't, are swayed back to the other side. So this really becomes a cultural issue, which makes it a church issue. Are we salt and light within our culture? So, how do we win the hearts of people around us using the rhetoric of Jesus and make God the issue? A few suggestions. Our standard argument has been abortion is murder. The problem, while it's impossible to deny that truth, is that this truth is usually presented in a harsh manner in the public forum. And the standard counter-argument is is when they say, yes, this poor young victim of rape is a murderer. Yeah, you Christians got it right again. You see how that works? It never works to to our side. I think that Jesus would use the Word of God to convey the positive image that man is the image of God. While most Americans don't necessarily believe or live by the Bible, polls indicate that up to 85% of Americans say they believe in the God of the Bible without certainly knowing what that means. But we've got to use that common ground to gain a foothold in their hearts. Isn't it much more appealing to to hear and believe that you are made in the image of God rather than you're no more valuable than an animal? We've got to seize what God has simply told us and proclaim it. We've got to, if you will remember back, create linkage between the concept of the image of God with the unborn and abortion within the context of choice. Now, you can see what dissonance this creates in the minds of people. Why should one choose to destroy the image of God? By driving home the image of God rhetoric into the psyche of the American public, we move toward viewing God of the Bible as the most legitimate source of moral authority. Our ultimate goal, of course, being to convince people that he is the only moral authority. And when we're accused of legislating morality, we've got to quickly respond to, no, we are promoting morality and preserving the image of God in a civil and compassionate way. Again, this is how we can avoid the distasteful aspects of the debate which leads to apathy and brings the issue back to God, something we should want to talk about with our neighbors. Now, a more potentially emotional argument is the consequences of abortion to the millions of women, young and old alike, who suffer in its aftermath. In the church, it's almost a certainty, in any church, really, it's almost a certainty that some, perhaps many, have experienced abortion. In some of those churches, reminders come every January and Mother's Day. I was reminded of this by Olivia Gans, who headed up an organization called Victims of Abortions in the 1980s. And I heard Olivia say, every woman who has ever been pregnant is a mother. Some children die when old, some young. Some die by miscarriage. My child died by abortion. These post-abortive women suffer tremendously unless they have confessed and have experienced the cleansing of the blood of Christ. If the experience of repentant women can be highlighted, the forgiveness and healing only God can bring will touch the hearts of those who hide the memory and shame. Can you imagine how freeing this would be to draw those women to God's love, forgiveness, and healing? In addition, the pain of others is a powerful argument The testimony of post-abortive and healed women can be a potent incentive for young women to choose life and avoid that pain. By focusing only on the brutality of the murder we call abortion, we have caused a whole generation to turn its back on the issue. Think of what Jesus did. Jesus extended love to the woman caught in adultery and called her out of her sin. By extending love rather than condemnation, both women who have experienced abortion and those who are considering it will find the forgiveness, healing, and strength of God they so desperately need. The voices needed in this part of the conversation are those of the aborted and healed women. We must support them when, we have the, when they have the courage to stand and speak through prayer, unconditional acceptance, our, our finances and our encouragement. This fellowship, Lion and Lamb, supports both uh, Care Net on the national level and uh, Caring Pregnancy Options, the CPO here in Topeka, and I encourage all of you individually to support and volunteer for the organization. Uh, here locally, the CPO has recently spawned another organization called the Abortion Recovery Center to help heal women from their pain and loss. Finally. We can learn from the experience of some sidewalk counselors. These are the people who go to the clinics and try to convince others, try to talk to them about their, their life-changing decisions. I've got a couple of examples. One is a fellow that I know. And uh, he wrote that in 1989 and 1991, or through those years, he led a pro-life witness in front of the largest abortion center in New England just outside Boston. It involved worship, sharing the Lord with abortion rights supporters, and supporting sidewalk counselors reaching out to women coming for abortion. Our presence was positive. There was no condemnatory language or images, and we had thought-provoking questions on signs along with our banner. In two years' worth of Saturdays, very many women chose not to follow through with their abortion appointments. Many women went instead to local crisis pregnancy centers, and some found and some that we knew of found Jesus. As well, we shared the Lord with hundreds of abortion rights activists led by the Boston chapter of the National Organization for Women. The fruit was so great that after nine months, the Boston now uh, ordered their activists to no longer come down when we were there, for, as one of their leaders said, we were persuading too many of them. The banner we developed had seven words. You have the power to choose life. And they thought through those seven words very carefully. You see, the words that we see on the bumper stickers, choose life, come from the lips of Moses and are at the essence of biblical ethics. And they're well received by believers who know and trust the source. But for hurting people, not knowing the goodness of the source, they are, grammatically speaking, in the imperative sense, it's another command. So, while a young woman is being dropped off at an abortion clinic by her boyfriend or perhaps her father, pushing her into an abortion, she's already being forced. So, in the metaethics of the language, when she hears "choose life," she's simply hearing another command on the, from the opposing side—not good news or empowerment. So, by using the words. You have the power to choose life. We have honored her humanity in the face of the male chauvinist driving her toward, in most cases, an unwanted abortion. So words have power, and how you use them, how you frame them is is vital. I'd like to close with an article called Roe v. McCorvey because I think it says it all. I could outcuss the most crass of men and women. I could outdrink many of the Dallas Tavern's regulars. And I was known for my hot temper. When pro-lifers called me a murderer, I called them worse. When people held up signs of aborted fetuses, I spit in their face. Her name was Norma. Norma McCorvey. But you know her as Jane Rowe the name given to protect her identity in the Texas case that went to the United States Supreme Court called Roe v. Wade. Norma was a homeless abuser of drugs and alcohol, and at that time she was pregnant with her third child and had nowhere to turn. Her two children were being raised by others. She was persuaded over an offer of pizza and beer to sign a sworn statement that she never read she never testified at a trial and only years later learned of the landmark decision that bore her pseudonym in the newspaper. Years after this infamous decision was rendered, Norma found work in a Dallas abortion clinic. And there she said, I had a reputation to protect. After all, as the plaintiff in the infamous Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade, my life was inextricably tied up with abortion. Though I had never had one, abortion was the sun around which my life orbited. I once told a reporter, this issue is the only thing I live for. I live, eat, breathe, think about abortion. But then, the fiery pro-life group Operation Rescue moved in next door. I called Flip Venom, the brash and bold leader of Operation Rescue, Flip Venom. Flip called me responsible for the death of 35 million children. We were supposed to be sworn enemies, but due to the persistence of a local real estate agent, we became next-door neighbors whose offices shared a common wall. Occasionally, the clashes would collapse into conversation. During one, of, during one friendly banter, I goaded Flip. Flip, what you need is to go to a good Beach Boys concert. Flip answered, Miss Norma, I haven't been to a Beach Boys concert since 1976. Now, this seemingly innocuous response shook me to the core. All at once, Flip became human to me. I continued the teasing, Flip, come on. I didn't know you were ever a sinner. Miss Norma, Flip said, I'm a great sinner, saved by a great big God. Of all the things I expected Flip to say, this wasn't one of them. I didn't like to think of Flip as human. One day, as we chatted outside on the bench between our offices, however, Flip began sharing some stories of his past, and out of this vulnerability, an unlikely friendship was born. As my mind was challenged to consider the truth of the gospel, God began working on my heart through a seven-year-old girl named Emily, the daughter of another Operation Rescue volunteer named Rhonda. Early in our relationship, I explained to Emily, I like kids, and I wouldn't let anyone hurt little kids. To which Emily responded, Then why do you let them kill the babies at the clinic? On another occasion, I invited Emily into my office. As I made appointments, Emily kept herself occupied. During one phone call, I lost my temper and said to a caller, I just as soon see you in hell as see you here. And Emily responded when I got off the phone, You don't have to go to hell, Miss Norma. You can pray right now and Jesus will forgive you. This childlike faith cut open my heart making me receptive to the truth being shared by the adult volunteers at the rescue. I wasn't won over by compelling apologetics. I had a ninth-grade education, but a very soft heart. While the Operation Rescue adults targeted my mind, Emily went straight for the heart. And over time, Emily began to personify the issue of abortion, especially when Rhonda broke down and told me that Emily had almost been aborted. The confrontation between rescue volunteers and the abortion clinic workers became particularly acute on Thursdays through Saturdays when abortions were actually performed. I was torn apart by the fact that for four days out of the week, myself and Rhonda, not to mention the other volunteers at rescue, were the best of friends, but on the other three, we were bitter enemies." During one abortion day confrontation, I charged up to Ann, an Operation Rescue volunteer, who was holding a picket sign, and I yelled at her, You can't park the car on the same place you're picketing. Move the car. Ann responded, No, I'm not moving my car. This is our parking lot, too. I called Ann every name I could think of, which was usually enough to make the toughest protesters wilt. But Ann maintained her composure. When I saw that Ann wouldn't budge, I spit in her face. Anne smiled. I was furious. How dare you look at me like that? I screamed. How dare you smile at me? Anne politely wiped the spit off her face with her sleeve and said, Jesus loves you, and so do I, and I forgive you. It would have taken several clinic workers to pull me away from Anne, except I suddenly experienced severe chest pains and had to remove myself from the scene to catch my breath. Five minutes later, Rhonda and the girls showed up. The girls eager to give me a hug, and I was overwhelmed by such a generous display of love after I had nursed so bitter a hatred. The confusion inside me became intense. I couldn't stand the thought of losing Rhonda's friendship, and I wasn't about to let Emily be taken out of my life. But how long could we maintain a friendship when abortion stood between us? Then one morning... Emily cooed, Miss Norma, it would be so cool if you would come to church with us. Now I didn't want to disappoint Emily directly, so I answered, well Emily, we'll have to be cool another time. I can't go to church with you this weekend. And if I didn't want to offend Emily by an abrupt denial, I needn't have worried. Emily wasn't about to give up. Every morning, Rhonda heard Emily pray Dear God, please don't let any babies be killed. And make it so that abortion will end. And please help Miss Norma come to Jesus. Finally, I said yes. I didn't agree to go to church out of a sudden need for God in my life. I just grew tired of telling Emily no. So I said yes. Rhonda was skeptical. Norma, in church? But when they came to pick me up, I was dressed and ready to go. Whatever my reasons for going, one sermon was all I needed. Pastor Morris Sheets of Hillcrest Church ended his sermon with a compelling evangelistic call from John 3.16. Is anyone here tired of living a sinner's life? Immediately, I felt overwhelmed with my need to respond. How could I say no? I had been tired of it for years, but it was the only life I knew. I cautiously raised my hand, then opened my eyes and looked to see if that was really my hand raised up high. It was. I couldn't believe it. I walked forward, leaning heavily on Rhonda for support. When I reached Pastor Sheets, I saw Jesus in his eyes. It made me feel so so incredibly sorry for all my sins, especially for my role in legalizing abortion. I just kept repeating over and over, I just want to undo all the evil I've done in the world. I'm so sorry, God. I'm so, so sorry. As far as abortion is concerned, I just want to undo it. I want it all to just go away. Finally, I stopped crying and broke into the biggest smile of my life. I no longer felt the pressure of my sin pushing down on my shoulders. The release was so quick that I felt like I could almost float away. My conversion is one for the ages. The time was precise. Operation Rescue was next door to my clinic for less than a year. Flip has said, we moved in just long enough to pick up Miss Norma. But it wasn't until I had a regenerated heart that the truth of what abortion does could find a place in my intellect. Once that truth took hold, there was no turning back. I'm now 100% sold out to Jesus and 100% pro-life. Please don't think that you... Anybody in this room can do nothing. Please remember that if we simply reach out with the love of God, if we reach out with His truth, each of us can have an effect on the culture around us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are astounded at how you use the most unlikely of people, even little children, to bring your truth to the hearts of those who are stone cold to your love. And then thaw them out and make them your children. Lord, we give praise and wonder about what we can do in this difficult issue how we can bring people to look back to you and from that starting point understand what's happening. Lord, we lift it up to you and pray that you would use each one of us today in whatever way you seem fit to affect the lives of those around us. Help us, Lord, to win others through your love. We give praise and honor and glory to you and bow down before you as we worship today. It's in the precious name of your son that we pray. Amen.